Welcome to the Functional Nutrition Podcast with Aaron Holt, Functional Nutritionist. I work with clients on the seacoast of New Hampshire and virtually all over the world through both private consultations and online nutrition programs. I'm here with my co-host, Kyle Mayorana, registered dietitian of Root Down Nutrition based in Asheville, North Carolina. We are both board-certified integrative and functional nutritionists. This means we dive deep with people to get to the root cause of their health issues. In this podcast, we will address all things health, food, and nutrition, discussing our research, clinical experience, and life experience. Please keep in mind our disclaimer, this podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or medical treatment. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Hi, friends. We are back with another interview. Today on the show, I have Dr. Tina Bodwin. She is a naturopathic doctor. So she earned her doctorate in naturopathic medicine at Bastyr University, which I'm sure many of you guys are familiar with. She is passionate about working with patients to relieve pain and suffering while restoring health and vitality. That is something that I think we all want. Um, Dr. Bodwin is a pretty busy gal. She's the president of the New Hampshire Association of Naturopathic Doctors. She's also on the board of the National Association of Environmental Medicine. That's really going to come into play quite a bit today. Um, For those of you guys who are local listeners, her practice is called Health Strong Integrative Medicine, and she's in Manchester, New Hampshire. And of course, I will link to her website in the show notes. Um, Dr. Bodwin is dedicated to improving access to healthcare and education. Today, we're going to be talking about the clean water crisis, both locally, but also on a much larger scale. Um, It's funny, I put out a call for questions on Instagram a couple of months ago about clean water, knowing that I was going to be interviewing her. And I have got the biggest response that I ever have. Um, So many people sent in questions, and they were mostly about filters, funnily enough. So we'll for sure get into all of that, filtration devices, what to look for, um, all that good stuff. But before we do, I think it's really important for folks to understand why. Like, why do we care about this stuff? What's the crisis? What's the problem? Um, and then, of course, what do we do about it? So, Dr. Bodwin, you have become sort of an expert in clean drinking water. I know that you lecture and um, teach to other doctors, other physicians, um, you know, across across the country. So why do you think this is such a big deal? Why why did this become an area of interest for you? Um, well, first I want to say thank you so much, Erin, for having me on. It became, uh, it became uh, a source of inspiration when I was in working with patients. So we all take, a, as doctors, we all take a sacred oath, first do no harm. And when I work with patients, One of the things I ask them about when we first start off are their foundations of health. So the foundations are pretty basic, sleep, nutrition, emotional and mental health, how well they eliminate exercise and movement, water, and environmental exposures. So I ask every patient how much water they drink. It's on an intake. You always have to know. It's one of the fundamentals. And I'd advise them on how much water they should be taking. So a good rule is half your body weight in ounces plus extra for diuretics. 
or exercise, any water loss. And diuretics would be things like caffeine, coffee. Exactly. Okay. So caffeine and coffee, which a lot of folks um, enjoy, and, um, and alcohol, of course. And so I'd be recommending, I'd be encouraging them to drink more water. And with that, I felt a responsibility. Well, what's in our water and how is it regulated and how clean is it? Am I encouraging them to drink more contaminants or am I, um, or is it not a problem? So it made me do a deeper dive because no one's really talking about water and the health impacts it has, water regulations. And so that spurned me to do a deeper dive. And when we think about it, we're humans are water, right? Our brain and heart are 73% water, our lungs 83%, skin 64%, even our bones are about 31% water. Huh. And so, and the reason why it's so important, of course, in health is all the things it does for you, right? You need it for, by the brain to produce your hormones and neurotransmitters, it regulates your body temperature, it's a shock absorber for your brain and your spinal column. For your joints, it helps deliver oxygen to your body, it flushes out waste. And so sometimes when working with patients, if I find some patients who are drinking, you know, maybe one to two cups of water a day, and then I see the, the effects of dehydration. And so chronic pain, especially lower back pain, um, is dehydration contributes. Constipation, many folks out there are constipated. They should be having at least one bowel movement a day. And if they're not drinking enough water, it makes it much harder for their, for their digestive system to work. So kidney stones, headaches, and for those who are suffering from allergies, when you're dehydrated, you have increased histamine release. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, so that's a big one. Allergies are very big right now. So if you're dehydrated and you suffer from allergies, drink up some clean water. Also increased blood viscosity. We don't want sludgy blood. Also UTIs and urinary tract urinary tract infections and upper respiratory infections. Um, dehydration makes you more susceptible. And another big one that people fight with, struggle with a lot, are food cravings. When you're dehydrated, your body's going to send out signals and you're going to mistake those you can mistake those for food cravings in fact you just need to drink more water so you can see why water is such an important thing for all of us to make sure we're getting enough of i just wanted to make sure i wasn't telling my patients to uh, drink more contaminants yeah that makes sense you had mentioned something about um, regulations um and I know that you, you speak a lot about this publicly. Um, what Can you go into a little bit of about the history of drinking water regulations and what we should know about them as consumers? Sure. Well, one of the things we should, one of the first things um, I did was look at when do we establish drinking water regulations in the United States? And it was only established in 1974. Oh, dear this, God. I know. So that's a, that's a long time. So, and that's called the Safe Drinking Water Act. And it requires the EPA to have regulations that restrict the level of certain contaminants in the drinking water. And so the EPA has established about primary drinking water regulations for about 100 um, contaminants. Now think about it, the average American is exposed to 3,000 contaminants a day, and our drinking water regulations only regulate about 100 of those contaminants. Wow. And a, and a big surprise that the EPA has not adopted a single new standard for regulating chemicals in drinking water since 1996. Wow. That's a biggie. That's a biggie. <laughs> 
because <laughs> there's been a lot of uh, a lot more contaminants added to the environment since 1996, I would imagine. Yes, and we see those things popping up all over. One of the things that's helpful to know, I know some folks are going to go and try and grab their um, their town's drinking water reports. And so some, some good terminology to know is there's, there's something called the MCL, which is the maximum contaminant level. And that's the highest level that a contaminant is allowed to be in the drinking water. Um, and then there's something called the maximum contaminant level goal. And that, that's the goal below which there is no known or expected health risks. But those um, allow for a margin of safety, but those aren't enforceable public health goals. So there's a big difference between what we think is good for the public and also what we can actually enforce. So cost comes into play on that one as well. There's also um, maximum residual disinfectant level, and we'll talk about that more. That's the highest level that disinfectants are allowed in the drinking water. So things like chlorine, chloramine, and their byproducts. Okay, so you're saying some things that sound a little bit scary. Why don't you tell us specific contaminants that um, that are really important in your eyes that we should be on the lookout for or that okay. might be in our water? Okay, so before we jump to that, I just want to share one piece. So we have these rules in place, right? We have these standards and a wonderful organization, the Natural Resources Defense Council, NRDC, did a great study in 2015 and they said, okay, let's look at the EPA um, in the states uh, in any violations. So we have these regulations. Are they being enforced? So in 2015, there were over 80,000 uh, violations reported in drinking water um, uh, facilities. Wow. 80,000. And so the EPA and states only took formal enforcement action against 13% of those violations. So that means 9 out of 10 violations were subject to no formal action by the state or the EPA. So no issues of violations, no notice, no site visit, no filing of a civil or criminal uh, action. And the whopping 3.3%, which is so scary, are those um, even fewer of those reported violations received penalties. So 80,000 violations and only 3%, 3.3% received penalties. So we have these regulations, but they're not being enforced. Well, that sounds like a huge problem. So you're basically saying like the regulations that we do have in place aren't even that great to begin with, and they're not even being enforced. No. Like maybe 3% of the time they are. Yeah. And so those are the stats for um, all violations for the Safe Drinking Water Act. And then a little bit deeper dive. So formal enforcement of actions for health-based violations. There were 12,000 of those in 2015, and only 6.7% received, um, were assessed for a tiny fraction that received penalties. So we know that they cause harm, but they're, you know, that the, that the violations led to direct harm and only 6.7% received violations. So, um, I guess my question would be, how do you, what do you mean that we know that they caused harm? So the levels of the contaminants in the drinking water are above health-based regulations. Okay. So Yikes. we know it, it causes harm. And then at the top of the list, this is going to transition us into what you should be thinking about when you think about water quality. Um, so at the top of the violations, so you have all different things. You have the arsenic rule, the lead and copper rule, the nitrates. The top of the list of the violations 
were combined disinfectant and disinfectant byproducts. So the chlorine and the chloramine and the disinfectant byproducts were, were the highest of the list for violations. So these are ones that actual, um, the public waters um, works are actually putting into the system. Oh my God. So they're doing this on purpose. So purpose is a strong word, but they're doing okay. it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> it's happening. Okay. I don't think they're deliberately doing it, <laughs> but I think they're lax in, in okay. doing it. I didn't mean like they're yeah. trying to poison us. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. All right. So that, that was kind of going to be my next question is like, where are these contaminants coming from? Okay. So the top of the list, we're going to start um, with the disinfectants. So we definitely don't want bugs in our water, right? So we have to kill them. The way that we do this in the United States is we use chlorine or chloramines. And so when they're, this, the states actually, the states are allowed, just to back up a little, the EPA has all these rules, but states can take the lead in being the ones who enforce them. And they get additional funding if they're going to be the ones who enforce the rules. So the local rules set by your state and towns. Um, and so your states and towns are going to, they can choose whether they're using chlorine or chloramines. These disinfectants are really important. As we know, those were the highest violations in 2015 on the data across the country. Now, chlorine is a primary disinfectant. When it's above the recommendations, you see eye and nose irritation and stomach discomfort. And they're required by law to send a notice to people in that town or city, a 30-day notice when those levels are above the guidelines. Does that happen? No, as you can see, there was little action taken. And so there's also another, when chlorine dioxide, another of another type of chlorine, is above the, the set limits, you can see anemia, um, and anemia in young, in young kids and in infants, and also nervous system effects. And doesn't chlorine affect the thyroid as well? Wouldn't you see, I would, would be surprised if you didn't start to see some thyroid dysfunction. We do with the, we do with the chloramines. I'm not sure okay. with the chlorines. Okay, That's got a it. good question though. So chloramine has only been in use since the 1930s. And it takes... So not even 100 years. Nope. So it takes um, longer than chlorine to kill organisms, to kill the bugs, right? But it provides longer lasting disinfection. Um, so it lasts longer as it moves through the pipes. And important to know is that about one in five Americans use drinking water treated with chloramines. And we're going to talk more about why that's important and why you should know whether your drinking water is um, being disinfected with chlorine or chloramines. I'd prefer chlorine if, um, if I had to choose between the two. And what you can see with when those levels are above the, the regulatory standards, you see eye and nose irritation, stomach discomfort, and anemia. We have a lot of anemia. That's pretty common, right, in this country. Stomach disorders, GI problems. And we know that that's the biggest violation in this country. And so the other big piece is, so they're using chlorine and chloramines, but when they combine, when chlorines and chloramines react with the organic matter found in water, um, they create something called disinfectant byproducts. And so these are two big groups called trihalomethanes and haloacetic acid. The reason why I want to spend a little time on this is, number one, it's a big violation that we see in the, in the water system. But also the health impacts of these is much more serious. So trihalomethanes are um, a group of 
chemicals that form that are made up of chloroform, bromochloroform, bromodichloromethane, and dibromochloromethane. Try saying those fast. <laughs> All right. So when these um, when these are above the regulatory standards, the long term exposure of these are liver, kidney, and central nervous system problems reproductive developmental health risks, preterm delivery and small for gestational age, increased risk of cancer, specifically liver and renal cancer. And this is a big one, increased risk of spontaneous abortion in the first trimester, anywhere from 7.9% to 16%. Wow, that is high. It is. And I don't, do you remember Erin Brockovich? Yeah. Okay. So Erin Brockovich, we saw her back in the, you know, we saw the famous movie about her, about hexavalent chromium. Well, if you see what she's working on now, it's trihalomethanes. She's trying to spread the word about these disinfectant byproducts and the real harm and danger they pose. Because it's such a big deal. It's such a big deal. And we know that we know that the, there are violations all across the country and these and the levels are, you know, not being monitored. Um, and kept within the safe limits. And also, we know the individual impacts of these um, disinfection byproduct, disinfectant byproducts, but also think about the synergistic effect. There's over 600 identified disinfectant byproducts, and so we don't know the, what happens synergistically when they're all together, the bigger health impacts that they have. Right, and I think that's such an important point to drive home, even like individual uh, chemicals that may have been studied for human safety, which by the way, not all of them are, um, we don't know the the cocktail effect, if you will, once they interact with our human physiology and once they interact with each other within our human physiology. It's like this big freaking question mark. <laughs> it's a great point. Um, one other thing I want to share about trihalomethanes and, um, is that your exposure is, say you take a shower and there's trihalomethanes in your water, which there are, you can, within 10 minutes after showering, we can find these levels in your blood. What the so heck? The, yes. So <laughs> showering. I know when I first did this research, I was like, oh my God, I'm never showering again. Um, but so yeah, so inhalation or dermal absorption during hot showers and baths is greater than drinking the water. So that's one of the reasons why you want to consider... Um, a whole house water filtration unit. Oh my goodness. Okay. So and we'll so, get into the, the filtration because now I have like all the filter questions. Like should I get a shower <laughs> one? Should I get, you know, like, <laughs> what, which one gets yeah. rid of the trihalomethanes? All those questions. Yeah. So we'll, we can circle back around to the filter thing at the, towards the end. So we can give people some real tangible, like, hey, go do this advice. Sounds um, great. So, okay. So we have... Um, so you, you mentioned a lot of big words. Are there other any other contaminants that we should be mindful of? You had mentioned briefly lead. Is there lead in our drinking water? There is lead in our drinking water. Um, let's. I'm gonna. If it's all right, Erin, I'm gonna back up just a little because I think this might be a burning Absolutely. a burning question for a lot of folks. Is fluoridation? Oh yeah. Big time. <laughs> Big time. So again, I like to do a little history, um, a little background on when we started fluoridating our water. So it started in Grand Rapids, Michigan in 1945. 
um, when they started adding fluoride to the water. And right now, uh, there's about 75% of the United States is served has fluoridated water. So that's about 210 million Americans. The, the goal for the government by 2020 is to have 80% of the population um, drinking fluoridated water. So why? Um, they feel it's good for dental reasons. So every single... Uh, you know, what do we want to say? Naturopath doctor, functional medicine doctor, and biological dentist that I've asked about this disagrees with that. Oh, I strongly disagree. And I'll tell you why. Please. Okay. And also, there's a little bit of history. So right now, it's the current level is 0.7 milligrams per liter. And that only changed um, in 2015. It used to be 0.7 to 1.2. But because of the rates of dental fluorosis, you know, when you see that the discoloration on the teeth? Yeah. They lowered it. So it only recently got lowered. Huh. 2015. Uh, so internationally, let's look at what the rest of the world is doing. Most developed nations do not fluoridate their water. In Western Europe, only 3%. So when you're thinking of Europe, only 3% of the population consumes fluoridated water. There are more people drinking fluoridated water in the United States than the rest of the world combined. Oh my God! So the the rest of the world is not drinking fluoridated water. Well, some of them are, but I mean, that's pretty. And so the World Health Organization did a great um, study where it looked at forty years from nineteen seventy through two thousand ten. They compared fluoridated. Um, countries with non-fluoridated countries and looked at their cavities, their tooth decay trends, right? Are the countries that are doing better, are the countries with fluoridated water doing better? Hands down, the answer is no. From 1970 to 2010, every country went down in dental caries. So fluoridated, those countries that aren't fluoridating, they're not seeing, you know, high rates of cavities. So that alone is going to smash that myth because you're using world data on that. Now, um, let me jump in and say, would we know via our town water reports whether or not our town water is fluoridated? Um, you should. It's an easy enough thing to do. Actually, you can just go into Google and say, type in your town is water is the water fluoridated, and you'll get any you'll get um, typically right to their local, uh, okay. right to the information at the top of the site. And then this might be a dumb question, but I would assume that if you're on well water, it would not be, correct? No, that's not true, actually. In oh. some areas across the, you know, so fluoride is naturally occurring in our, um, in the earth, right? And so in some places, one of the things that why we have such data on fluoride and its effects, particularly on children, it is because some places have endemically high levels of fluoride. So China, one of the studies in China had very high levels of fluoride naturally occurring that made its way into their drinking water. And so those that's where we saw some pretty good research on the effects of IQ on children. So there are places all over the country, just depends on your area, whether or not it's naturally occurring there. So how does it affect IQ in children? Did you already say this? I missed that part. Um, so, um, is the IQ going up or down? Down. So okay. low levels of water fluoride, anywhere from 0.24 to 2.84 had significant negative effects on kids' intelligence. Huh. Do you know if, so I, I, a lot of, uh, dentists push fluoride treatment for small children is, do you have any take on that in terms Absolutely of, Absolutely not. is that being, no. 
<laughs> no, it's it's being absorbed, right? They it's their mucosal cavity. I strongly encourage folks to avoid um, putting fluoride in their kids' mouths. Thank you for saying that. It's a neurotoxin. We know that. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's no reason to do it, and uh, a good diet and brushing and flossing your teeth is really important, especially flossing. <laughs> Um, so another thing, this you mentioned thyroid health earlier, a special passion for me, uh, thyroid health affects so many uh, people. Um, so there was a great study done in England where they looked at fluoridated water in two towns. One town had fluoridated water, the other town no fluoridated water, and it's not a complicated study. But the fluoridated water increased the incidence of hypothyroidism. It's only looking at one factor, but again, it was still pretty uh, interesting. Oh yeah, for sure. That, there's a there's a big link between the two, from my understanding. Exactly, there is. Um, another one is carotid atherosclerosis, so plaques. Um, the higher the fluoride exposure, increases the carotid arteries uh, placking. Oh, wow. Also, um, it reduced glutathione peroxidase activity. So we know we love glutathione in our body, a master antioxidant. Um, yeah, so maybe the listeners aren't familiar with glutathione. Um, I mean, I've said it on the show probably 600 times because <laughs> I think it's so wonderful. So can you just, you know, it's, it's, can you just explain a little bit about why that's a really important thing? If something's reducing our glutathione, why is that a big deal? Um, so glutathione, as you said, is uh, it's the master antioxidant. It's the top of the chain for our antioxidant system. So we're constantly battling um, toxics, toxins, and uh, oxidative stress. And so glutathione helps reset the balance on that. And you're welcome to chime in. It sounds like you've talked a lot about that, Erin. Um, you are the expert today, my friend. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> so we definitely don't want to damage our glutathione pathways. And we found that um, elevated exposures um, in fluoride endemic areas decrease the activity of glutathione peroxidase. Okay. Okay. So, so a lot of negative health consequences of consuming fluoride on the reg, it sounds like. It is. And you're going to get it. And also don't forget there, when you eat processed foods, those are like, those can very likely also be processed with fluoridated water. You're getting a lot of exposure to fluoride. And fluoride, as we know, does not decrease the risk of cavities in your kids. Okay. All right. But it can decrease their intelligence. So <laughs> skip the fluoride. <laughs> All right. Um, how about, or do you, you said you were you wanted to tell us a little bit more about the the history of? Is there anything? Oh else no, that's good. I think okay. that, you know okay. just a little bit of background that okay. cool. of how they're fluoridating. Um, All right. And so next, I'd like to talk about a hot topic: um, the PFAS, the perfluorooctanoic acid uh, compounds. Is that a hot topic? It is in New Hampshire, and actually it is in even Flint, Michigan, all over the country we're having, and even um, at the government level we're seeing it. Actually, just recently, two uh, legislators in New Hampshire just proposed legislation on limiting um, PFAS because it's contaminating our water here in New Hampshire. Um, but also when it's especially important for military bases because they have a lot of PFAS exposure with their firefighter foam and things like that, putting out fires in their drills and training, you oh, see elevated yeah. levels. But we have problems here in New Hampshire because St. Cobain, 
um, who manufactures PFAS. PFAS are things that are seen in nonstick pans and waterproofed clothing, stain resistant, grease resistant. If they make any of those claims on any products in your house or home, on your rugs or in your nonstick pans, they have PFAS in them. Okay, so chances are we have a lot of them in our house and home. You do, and actually a study um, found that 99% of Americans have detectable levels of PFAS in their blood. Yikes. Now, you is this does this contaminate the water through production of these products? Is that what's happening? It does. They're dumping. And so it was oh a problem my God. for dumping. Interestingly enough, actually, PFAS is... Is um, was the center of one of the largest studies in the United States in environmental medicine back in, oh, I hope I get the date right. I think it was the 1940s. No, I'm sorry, it's the 1950s. In a small, in a town in West Virginia, DuPont, who was making your nonstick pans, had been dumping PFAS into the community for decades. And they collected the blood samples of 70,000 residents. And so we have really strong data on the health impacts of PFAS. So, and these you can readily find on the EPA website. And so I'm going to tell you a little bit about what it does to your body. Well, the highest concentrations are found in your liver. And it's actually, uh, they have more liver accumulation in males than in females. It's also found in your kidneys, lungs, heart, muscles, testes, and, and men, and uterus and females. So they're accumulating in, in, Absolutely. in our bodies. Absolutely. They, they have very long half-lives. There's a variety of PFAS, um, uh, different types of them. And they have varying, you know, years and years that they stay in our bodies. So the health impacts, um, a big one is thyroid disease. So they influence thyroid disease. They raise cholesterol levels, reduce fertility, pregnancy-induced hypertension, ulcerative colitis, altered ability for kids um, responding to vaccinations, and testicular and kidney cancer. And new research, it's pretty strong, and we just saw this released from the National Institute of Health, is linking it to pancreatic cancer. Wow. People are starting to freak out right about right about now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm great at parties. <laughs> okay. All right. So PFAS exposure is clearly something we need to be concerned with. Now, you had mentioned that um, there's different um, legislation, both nationally and locally, and you had said that this issue is coming up in New Hampshire, right? Do mm -hmm. we as consumers have any power to say, like, hey, this is important to me, please listen? Like, what do we do? Oh, thank you for that question, Erin. It's really an important one. And the first thing is, is um, uh, contacting your local representatives, your state senators and rep House of Representatives, and letting them know that this is important to you, especially as elections come up. You want to know how they're voting and whether or not they're voting to increase the increase the restrictions and hold the contaminators accountable because you don't want this coming out of taxpayer dollars, your dollars, right? Our dollars. Um, and that's what's happening. This, the local towns are being, are being asked to foot the bill or even the residents um, are saying, hey, you're on your own. So a big one is to talk to your local legislators and see and, you know, make it and make sure if it's not already an issue, if it is a contaminant in your area, um, Ask if they're supporting stronger regulations. 
So I think that's a, that's an important thing to, to take note of if you're listening. Um, we can hear a lot of this stuff and we can feel very overwhelmed and we can sometimes feel like I have no control over this. I'm just going to put my head in the sand and pretend it's not happening. I think that's a very common and probably normal response. But I think it's important to, to really hear what we're saying here is that you do have a say in the matter. You do have power. Is it going to take a little bit of elbow grease? Yeah. Is it going to take a little bit of work on your behalf? Yeah. But if we all collectively do this together, we could hopefully affect some change because what's happening is just really not okay. It's a great point. Thank you, Erin. Um, for those in New Hampshire, there's uh... You can join the Merrimack, New Hampshire water issue. They have a great Facebook site. They have incredible people on the on the ground really working hard. So for folks in Bedford, Merrimack, Portsmouth, even in Manchester, um, there's, there's PFAS contamination. But it is, again, a nationwide issue. And I'll give you some resources. Yeah, you know, if you send me the resources it, mm -hmm. uh, through email, what I can do is throw them in the show notes so people can just yeah. have clickable links to go. I mean, you could certainly say them right sure. now. Um, but that way people can have some... Um, some places to go after this this airs. Okay, so there's two great ones. The PFAS Project, pfasproject.com, and that's a great group of uh, brain trust of brilliant professors at Northeastern University. And they also even have a site tracker. Another one is called the C8 Science Panel. So the letter C, the number eight, sciencepanel.org. And that was the one that was set up um, in Parkersburg, West Virginia, where DuPont did all that dumping um, since the 1950s and had a major lawsuit. Um, okay. So, and also I want to, you know, nothing wrong with name dropping. I think people trust certain sources more than others. The Harvard Gazette back in 2016 published um, unsafe levels of toxic chemicals, the PFAS, found in drinking water in 33 states. So this isn't just a local problem, it's all over. And um, they found, the Harvard study found that drinking water supplies for 6 million residents across the country had levels above the advisory um, level for drinking water, which is 70 parts per, per trillion. And so in addition, because of the government data is lacking on these compounds, because we're not testing, um, it's estimated that it affects almost a third of the country, so 100 million people. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of people, and we have a lot of sick Americans who are, who are struggling with a lot of health issues. And so let's uh, not make sure it's coming from their water. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, so do you want to move on to what our testing options are? Or are there more contaminants that you'd like to? Um, I would like people? to mention a couple more. So arsenic. Yeah. So arsenic, and this is a this was actually a powerful one for me to learn that um, water is where you have your highest exposure to arsenic. Huh. Yeah, and well water is especially at risk as the EPA does not mandate any testings. And only in 2001 did the EPA lower the drinking water standard for arsenic from 50 to 10 parts per billion. That's a big decline, and that's only in 2001. So imagine the levels we've been exposed to for years and years. And just for level of importance, 
um, the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry. It's a mouthful. <laughs> Arsenic is the number one highest ranking contaminant um, in the United States on the substance priority list. So the government says, okay, which are the which are the worst contaminants that we have to look out for? And that's based on a combination of frequency, toxicity, and potential for human exposure. Arsenic is the highest. And your highest exposure is through water. So if you are on well water, I mean, how, what do you think, how frequently should you be testing your well water? That's a good question. Actually, I don't have the answer for that. Dartmouth um, has a great site that has a good resource that I can send you. I'm okay. not sure on the frequency of testing on how much the, the groundwater is going to shift over time, but um, I would definitely have that tested. We had to get just this, just a couple of months ago, we had to test our well water. So we got it tested when we first moved in four years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, but our neighbors came back that they had super high radon levels in their water, like our next door neighbor. Mm -hmm. um, and so the testing facility, the lab was like, you should tell your neighbors about this. Ours came back fine, totally within normal oh, range. Good. But they, thank God. But they did say that we should get it tested every like four to five years, okay. specifically for that contaminant. I don't know if that would, okay. you know, be the same for everything else, but that's just oh, some, yeah. And radon, I mean, that wasn't even on my radar at all. I mean, living in New Hampshire, you think it might be, but I just didn't know that that was a, that was a thing. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't before I did this deep dive, none of this was on my radar. Yeah, I don't think it's something that we all think about, right? No. So quickly, arsenic health impacts cancer, bladder, lung and skin. Um, it's also associated with increased uh, risk of liver and prostate cancer, heart and lung disease, diabetes, um, lower immune function, poor brain function in kiddos, skin lesions and endocrine disruption. And don't forget, kids are kids are more at risk, so because um, per pound of body weight than adults, they they're much more at risk. We really have to make sure that um, we're protecting the kids, because arsenic in kids has lower IQ, impaired brain development, growth problems, breathing problems, poor immune system, and cancer as an adult. Yikes! I you gotta. <laughs> Who's inviting me to their next barbecue? <laughs> <laughs> She's a good time. Um, okay. All right. So arsenic, what are, what are other things that we need so to know about? Just I'm going to highlight mercury because it's a biggie. And okay. Actually. We can get it, mercury in our drinking water? Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. Yep. It's, the, the reason I really want to point it out, it's number three on the ATSDR priority list. Um, but two-thirds of why it's a problem is for... Uh, human-made sources, including industrial plants, coal burning. So coal burning, you know, releases mercury into the atmosphere and then from the some of the plants down south gets carried up to New England. But all over the world, there, are, you know, where there are coal plants, there's going to be mercury increase. But the reason I wanted to really um, mention it is because the methylmercury or mercury concentrations in fish um, in the United States, uh, one in four streams across the United States has elevated levels of mercury beyond safety for human consumption. So one in four of our river and lakes has mercury levels too high. Uh, we, we know it's a neurotoxin and it does all kinds of horrible things in the body. What's your stance on eating, 
eating fish? It's a good question. And since um, you're so steeped in this work, I would so now I need to know. Yeah, I think if you're gonna if you're gonna fish, know where you're fishing and know what the levels are. Um, but in terms of fish mercury, the bigger the fish, the higher the mercury burden. So I'd avoid avoid things like tuna and uh, mahi, you know, shark and those the bigger fish. And you really want to avoid farmed fish. There's no such thing as Atlantic um, wild cod. It's all farmed. Um, and know your fish. So wild caught, sustainable, uh, smaller fish is the way to go. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Um, and I, my, my understanding, you know, t- correct me if I'm wrong too, is that in some of the seafood that we're eating, because a lot of us are scared to death of eating fish and seafood for this exact reason because of the mercury, but a lot of them are um, contain naturally contain selenium, which may have a protective role against mercury. Uh, that's a good question. Looking, I actually do use selenium, selenium in patients with mercury exposure, selenothiamine at 200 micrograms um, daily. So that's a good question. I haven't seen any data looking at um, the content, the selenium content in fish, and how it might decrease some of the the adverse health effects. That's a good question. Okay. Well, it might just be something, especially if somebody is dealing with mercury issues and they know that might be something to, to bring up to your practitioner at the very least. Yes. Okay. So mercury is a big deal. We're getting, you know, our, our water, our waters are contaminated, you know, a quarter of our water ways are contaminated with mercury because of the environmental, the things that are being dumped into the environment. Bad news. Okay. What else? What are the, what are the things? <laughs> All right. Let's go to lead because that's a big yeah. People are curious about lead. Yeah. You know, I get asked about a lead a lot, so I would like to hear what you have to say about it. Okay. So, um, so the regulations are um, are not stringent enough. Today, at least 4 million households have kids living in them um, that are being exposed to high levels of lead through the water. Uh, so through the water, because, you know, like, I think we hear lead and we're like, well, if my kid's not eating paint chips and my house isn't 600 years old, I'm probably fine. But so how is it coming in through the water? So a big, a big, uh, nice little factoid is that there are six to 10 million service lines across the nation that are made of lead. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. It should be replaced. So um, there's still lead pipe out there that we need to invest in our infrastructure. Okay. Um, and this is a good resource. Do you use EWG, Erin? Oh yeah, all the time. Okay, so that's a great that's a great resource, and they actually have uh, EWG.org, EnvironmentalWorkingGroup.org, EWG backslash tap water. You can go to that site and you can type in your zip code and it'll list the contaminants there for you. Oh, and that's, that's based that's on point. EPA data. So they, they, they take the Environmental Protection Agency data, which is online, and they looked at it and they found that 19,000 public water systems had at least one detection of lead above 3.8 parts per billion, the level at which formula-fed baby is at risk for altered blood lead levels. Again, children are much more uh, susceptible than adults, but um, we can't, this is a definitely a, a health risk. Okay. So I, I that's, that's 
pretty wild. So you can go in and you can type in your zip code to, and it will shoot you back whether or not ledge, it can be a concern for you. It, it does. And mind you, the data is not, um, the data, it shows you the dates from the data. But yeah, it'll, and it's not testing. Remember, it's not the, we're not even testing for, for many contaminants. We're testing, you know, for such a small number. This morning I pulled up a local town water report. It told me about, I think, not even 20 contaminants. Uh, that's so if you look at your water report it, it's it's not comprehensive it's barely scratching the surface of what can be found in our water okay so that that is um good to know that they're under reporting i guess not good to know but good information to have um somebody had said you know how do i even make sense of my town water report it's like reading greek so is there other i guess what would be the best way to know if your water is contaminated, is it to, to hire somebody to come test it? I would recommend you send off your water for testing. All right, where, I, where can we do that? So I think a good, um, a great lab is National Testing Laboratories. So it's ntllabs.com, National Testing Laboratories. And they have a bunch of different tests, whether you have city water or well water and how comprehensive you want of a test. And what is that? Um, what is that and how frequently do you do that personally? Personally, well, um, for me, I, I probably, I only do it, I probably only be doing it every five years. Okay. But what I okay. did is I used it before, um, I used it just to check what my municipal water supply was like and then I installed the filter and then I retested my water to make sure it was working. And was it working? It was. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> what did that, do you remember what those tests cost you? Um, you can go for, I probably, you know, for $200, you can get a pretty comprehensive test. So that is not a lot of money for a, a lot of important data. So that's, that would be something that we would recommend just about everybody do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, okay. it might be, what is it? Two months of your cell phone bill, maybe. Um, it's definitely worth the investment. I know. like how you put it into perspective like that. Cause so <laughs> that, you know, I'm sure you see a lot of this, a lot of what we come up against is like, well, healthy living is so expensive, I can't afford to do X, Y, Z. And I'm like, let's take a look at what you're spending your money on. <laughs> yeah. Well, unhealthy living, I'd say, is even more expensive. It's certainly expensive to the nation, if nothing else. Well, it's actually expensive to all Americans. The number one cause of bankruptcy in the United States are medical bills. Number one cause. And now it's shown that the average American pays more in medical costs than they do in taxes a year. Yikes. I know. I was like, oh my gosh. So really, it's uh, you invest now or you invest later. Um, I like that's a good way to put it. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grab that quote. <laughs> um, okay. So let's say you do, you spend 200 bucks, you get the lab testing, and you're like, oh dear, we've got a problem. It sounds like you're saying a full house filtration system is probably the best bet. So let's talk through that, but then maybe also talk through some other options for those who can't afford that right now. I mean, that might be something somebody has to save up for. You know what? It, it, it likely is. Most families are going to have to plan for that. Before we go into the filtration, there's one last topic that I think a lot of folks feel like, oh, I, you know what? I don't have to worry. I drink bottled water. Yeah, that's true. Bottled water. Is that tested for contaminants? Um, no, because, uh, well, that's regulated by the Food and Drug Association, right? It's not oh, regulated by the, the EPA. They're doing some great things, so I feel safe in their hands. Yeah, no. And so one of the big things, and we're seeing this in tap and in bottled water, are microplastics. 
Right. Big problem, right? We've seen that a lot in the news lately. But also we just saw a new uh, Consumer Reports actually um, put out that there also there's also contaminants. Bottled water is no better than your municipal supply, but also you're getting additional exposure to plastics, you know, the plastics in the plastic bottles. So... Yes. In 2016, 4 billion pounds of plastic was used to make bottled water, and that's going to come back at you anyway. It's going to be in your water that you're drinking out of it, but um, so bottled water is absolutely no better. We just saw that bottled water from Whole Foods had um, arsenic above safety limits. Super. Yeah. So... All right, filtration technologies. Okay. Oh, and as a last step, we talked about a lot of contaminants, but we didn't talk about the pharmaceuticals found in the water supply, anti-anxiety meds, beta blockers, antibiotics, hormones, um, nanoparticles like titanium dioxide from sunscreens, glyphosate, pesticides, herbicides, phthalates, artificial sweeteners. So we, we just touched the tip of the iceberg, and those things I just mentioned are completely unregulated in the water supply and not being tested. Um, all right. Now, would the filters remove that type of stuff? Yes. And you want to, you can become savvy on good sites. You're going to see, they'll tell you exactly what they're going to filter, whether it's heavy metals, um, the disinfectant byproducts, the chlorines, the chloramines, the radionucleotides, like uranium and radon. I had one patient I had run heavy metal testing on, and it came back high in uranium. I'm like, where's the uranium coming from? So we tested her water. It was in her water. Wow. Um, but your filters, you know, there's great technology out there and great people doing good work um, with a lot of integrity who want to give you really good filtration options. Okay, so let's start with the big the big one, the home, like the full filtration system for your entire house. That's if you can afford it, that's absolutely the best way to go. Okay, do you have a specific brand that you could recommend because I know people will be looking for specific brand recommendations. I do. I did um and this is the filter that I sent before and after testing on and it's Pure Effects filters. I think they have a lot of integrity and they're not reverse osmosis. And so one of the reasons why I wanted to find an option that wasn't reverse osmosis, because you lose a lot of wastewater and water is a precious resource. And I just didn't feel like that's a sustainable option. If people do go with that, try and have ones that have as little wastewater as possible. Okay. Oh, that's good to know. I didn't know that. Yeah. So it's an option. Okay, so pure effects filters for whole house. And point of use. So you have different types of filters. So you have whole house and then you have point of use, which you can either have above your sink or under your sink, which is really important for cooking and drinking. And also you can have, uh, there are water filters, there are filters for your shower. Now mind you, because that water is moving so fast, you it's important how much time the the water has with the filter, right? And so your shower's going pretty fast. You're not standing under a drip. And so it doesn't have much contact time. So it's going to filter oh, some stuff, but just not a lot. I see So what it's you're better saying. than nothing, but... Um, so it's not going to do like the heavy lifting. It's not. So the most important thing, if you can, is getting a point of use filter in your sink. If you can afford nothing else, that's, you know, that's a great investment for your family. I don't think I know what you mean by that because would that also cover showers too? No, 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 just the one. Okay, in the kitchen. okay, got it. Yep, All right, so, okay, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Um, okay, what are your thoughts on 
Berkey water filters. So like that's one that that's one that I have. It just sits on the the counter. Yeah. They have some pretty good stats. They do a really good job. The one area that I'm not confident in, and this is only because a colleague um, sent it for testing for fluoride. Um, I know, I think you can get an additional add-on for fluoride with them. Yes. And she had the add-on, and it didn't do a great job. Okay, that's really good to know. So, in whether or not they improved that, I know Berkey, you know, it's a good filter. Um and it's affordable, you know, for the, you know, again, if you're saving up for full home, I think they're like, you know, depending on what size you get, anywhere from like 150 to 400 dollars. So, on the more affordable side of things, but probably not the best option. What do you? It's, a, it's do you, a darn good option. Um, but better I, than nothing. <laughs> well, it's it's definitely better than the Brita filters, which I aren't doing anything really. Yeah. Okay. But, so how about that? Because I know a lot of people will install those on their sinks or have the you know just whatever. the picture. Yeah. Yeah. So, so those are those are doing very little. Okay. Um, and so typically you see a, a good a good filter will have three you know three to four different stages in different medium. So they'll use you know they. They use carbon, so you're going to have a carbon filter in it. And so the source of the carbon also matters. So they're, they're sourced from coal, wood-based carbon, or coconut shell. And so the coconut shell carbon has micropores, and it's cleaner and best for a wide variety of chemicals. But uh, your better companies are going to actually use a combination of all three to get a wider range of contaminant removal. But you definitely want the coconut in there. Another thing to consider... Let me know if this is too deep of a dive, Erin. <laughs> no, keep going. Okay. Is the carbon structure and size. So you hear about carbon blocks versus granulated carbon. So you want to go for the carbon block. It's um, a better structure because the contaminants can go around the granules in a granulated carbon. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. So these are all be like things to look for if you're researching your yeah. own filter. Okay. Yeah, if you or even if you want to look up what your filter has and you know you already bought one, you're like, hey, what how does what is mine? Um, on micron, so um, you want to typically 0.5 microns is optimal if you go too low and get clogged um, on the membrane. And then another important piece is you want catalytic carbon. You want catalytic activated carbon. Um, in your as, a, as the type of carbon and that's needed to remove the chloramines and a bunch oh, of contaminants okay. but okay. it's definitely better so I use some vetting questions yeah what would those be yeah okay so so the vetting questions for um, first step check on the contamination levels of your water supply and take note of any high levels of contaminants right so jump on the ewg.org website or even send off your, or if you can, send off your water for testing. And know that if you have a particularly high contaminant, and maybe it's higher than what that filter was made for, some of the better companies, and I know the one, um, the Pure Effect Filters does it, will work with you to make sure that the filter is going to meet your specific needs. Do you remember, you might not, do you remember what you ended up paying for your, your Pure Effects house filter? Um, for mine, I think it was, let's see, it was around $400 and, um, wait yeah. for the whole house filtration system. No, no, system? no. This was for my point of use. You can get a good whole house filtration system for two, you know, under $2,000. Oh, it's okay. I thought it was more like, you know, seven, eight grand. 
Well, you know what? There are ones that there are ones that go that high, but um, you don't necessarily have to invest that much. All right. And they so might have a, a there's a there's a one of my heroes in environmental medicine, Mary Cordaro, does excellent work in helping um, helping decrease the environmental toxicity of your homes. And she advises on you know it might be I think upwards of an eight step filtration process, pretty complex water filtration filtration process um and that those go thousands you know seven eight okay. upwards thousand but you don't okay. have to okay that's good to know so there's there's so many different options at different price points what it sounds like yes okay um we're Very coming fun. up on an hour do you Ooh. have extra like a few extra minutes to go over some some listener questions oh sure in? okay yeah. i do want to just add one quick oh, sorry. vetting question one last one yes yeah, um is on vetting questions, if you're looking at filters, ask questions about chloramine and fluoride, as these are two of the most challenging contaminants to filter out. So, um, cl and chlorine is easy. So chloramine is the hard one. And you want to look for a higher percentage, like 95% or greater filtration out for 500 to 1,000 gallons of use. And make sure that they don't, that they use tap water and not, you know, deionized water with just one contaminant because you want a real life scenario. Okay. These, this is all going to be so helpful. I'm like, when we're listening to it right now, or when I'm listening to you right now, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so much. But if somebody were to be looking to buy a filter, this is like the best information that they could hope for. Um, so thank you for going into such great detail. Okay. So... One question came in, they were asking, so when they filter their water, are they filtering out minerals? Um, and if so, what should they do to add the minerals back into the water? No, that's a good question about remineralizing. I, I, I say just go for your diet. Okay, awesome. I think, yeah, okay. have a good diet. Perfect. Um, as far as well water goes, is the self sulfur smell just a nuisance or is there actually a health concern with that? It can definitely be a health concern. Send your water for testing. Perfect. Um, we covered most of those. Yeah, you covered all the rest of them. There's one, one more question that I wanted to ask to kind of bring all of this stuff together and hopefully maybe talk some people off a ledge right now. Um, so knowing that we're bombarded with toxins, I mean, it's coming in through our drinking water, it's coming in through our, our environment, it's coming in through our homes, it's just happening in modern day. So as a doctor, especially one that is trained in environmental medicine, um, what is your advice to all of us to support detoxification? Do you recommend a quote unquote detox protocol that we see advertised or is this more of a daily thing? What's your approach there? Oh, that's a great question, Erin. Um, it depends who's asking the question. I think first, if if you're a pretty healthy person, you exercise, you eat well, you have no health conditions, you're on no medications, you could think about, um, you know, trying a detox program per se. But I think there's a big difference, especially since the majority of Americans are on medications and have multiple health issues, that just jumping into a detox is not advisable. Um, the big issue, the big concern, is that when you detox, your body has to effectively eliminate those toxins, right? If you encourage the release of these uh, chemicals, these toxicants in our body, um, the body has to be able to get them out. 
And if you don't do it in a safe, medically supervised way, these toxins can be redistributed to more dangerous areas of your body, like the brain or heart, and you can actually do more damage. So your body's going to be able to handle the release of those toxins and get them out effectively. So you really want to do that under the guidance of somebody who is trained, who not only has an understanding in this, but also has experience, is trained in this. This is a, a really big deal and such an important point that I'm, I'm glad you brought up because I, I don't think most people have a clear understanding of this. Like you can't just do a heavy metal detox by like adding some spirulina into your morning smoothie. Like it, it just doesn't it, – I, I wish it were that simple, right? Um, it would be nice. Um, and one of the best ways just for basic detoxing that everyone can do, you know, as long as their heart, um, their, their vascular system can handle it is sweating. Sweating is one of the best ways to get out contaminants and definitely make sure you're moving your bowels at least every day and drink a lot of clean water. Um, but otherwise work with someone who's trained to, uh, to manage that. What, you know, I, I may have said this on the show before, but there's been some interesting things that I've read about how certain contaminants we can um, we can get rid of through sweat and not through the feces, not through urine, like only sweat. So it, it is an important and sometimes overlooked thing. So do you have a, a, a particular way of sweating? I mean, do you, that's a weird question. Do you, <laughs> <laughs> I had an immediate answer, though. <laughs> but like, do you prefer sauna, infrared sauna, exercise? Like what's your... What would you say there? Uh, well, my my preferred way personally is through the game of tennis. Um, okay. Because <laughs> it's a, a great sport. But um, so if you can through movement or exercise, that's great. Um, otherwise, you know, sauna, infrared sauna, both great. You have to really be hydrated and replace your electrolytes um, if you plan on doing any sweating regimen. But it's it's traditionally a very effective and, and healthy way to... Uh, eliminate. Okay. And then last question, let's say somebody's listening. You had mentioned earlier that constipation is actually pretty darn common. Um, do you have like, what are your like top three pro tips for constipation? Obviously if there's a pathogen in the gut or, you know, the, the, there's a lot of, sure. this is a big topic. We could do probably an hour long podcast just on <laughs> constipation alone, but what have you seen clinically to be effective for that? Okay. Um, I'm going to, probably four things are the big players. Yes. Dehydration. Excellent. Okay. Not eating enough veggies. You need fiber to move your bowels. Um, stress management is a big one. Uh, people are in a stress state and it shuts down their, their digestive tract. Um, and exercise. When people start moving uh, regularly, they, they poop more. Awesome. Well, that is all so helpful. This was so much information. Um, and, and it's information that a lot of people don't have access to. So I think this is going to be a very important show. So I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show and teach us all about our drinking water. Well, Erin, it's been a privilege being on your show. And I really appreciate the work you're doing to get the word out there. So thank you. You bet. Now, before before I let you go, can you just tell people um, one more time where they can find you? Oh, I am in. I have a clinic in Manchester, New Hampshire at HealthStrong Integrative Medicine. Excellent. And I will, like I said, link to that in the show notes. Thank you very much. Um, this was great. Thank you, Erin. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. If you'd like to submit a question to the show, fill out the contact form at erinholthealth.com. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. Take care of you 